What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of THP Strength. In this week's podcast, we are going to be talking about hip versus knee dominant athletes. To our advertisers, this week's podcast is brought to you by Legion Supplements. One of the biggest questions we get asked is how to improve recovery. One of the only ways to do this is to give your body more bioavailability for the substrates that you need to, for your body to have the substrates it needs to repair itself. So if you're looking to recover faster and better, we highly recommend using Legion supplements. We advocate for a lot of them, but specifically the ones I love are the multivitamin, the fish oil, the protein, and then if you're not, if you're not taking those, I would highly recommend doing that. And then additionally, you can take, I believe it's Fortify, which is the collagen, type two collagen one, which also can be really good if you're a jumping athlete. That all said, we will jump into the topic today. So we'll start with everyone's experience hearing this. And Isaiah, we'll start with you. What was your experience on hearing hip versus knee dominant? And who did you get it from? What were their opinions? Go ahead. Yeah. So when I first got into the jump training and dunk world, this was around 2013, 2014, there was like a really big emphasis on hip versus knee dominance. The big like point of it all was basic at the time was that it was better to be a hip dominant athlete than that the most genetically gifted and best athletes in the world were hip dominant. And if you were hip dominant, you were better at like producing force. You could stay healthier because if you're knee dominant, you'll have more knee pain and stuff like that. And at the time I had a lot of knee pain. So I was trying to look at everything and I remember I was trying to change into a hip, more hip dominant athlete and I would look at guys like Jordan Kogan and stuff like that. And I'd be like, wow, he can jump for hours every day and not have any pain. He's definitely hip dominant. Who I got it from, I'm not sure. I know Joel Smith was really big about it uh, back in the day. There's also this foot guy, his name's like Shang Z or something like that. He would always talk about like the hyperarch mechanism and how if you activate the tendons in your foot properly and push through the big toe and stuff like that, there would be more muscle activation in your glute and that it was all about the foot and that would make you more of a hip dominant athlete, more healthy, jump higher, more athletic, that, that kind of thing. But over time, I, especially after I started working with John, I realized that like, for example, a two foot jump is literally a deep squat at high force. You use your knee extensors a lot. Like you have to use your quads to jump high and sorry i just got a text from cj <laughs> and yeah and also just getting rid of my knee pain and i didn't change anything about my hip dominance if anything you have to make your knee go through more load gradually to get rid of that but that's kind of my overall experience about it mm-hmm. um, i feel like one big misconception yeah. is that it's a bad thing to be one or the other or that it's even a thing the reality is Yes, you can have stronger hips than you can have stronger quadriceps. Obviously, that's possible. You could never do a squat a day in your life and just do hip thrusts and RDLs and stuff, and your hips and hamstrings will get super strong, and your knees probably wouldn't. But if you're a jumping athlete, you probably have very strong hips and quads, and you're going to want to make them as strong as you possibly can. And the jump strategy that you pick is largely going to determine what muscles are recruited and in what sequence. So it's weird to me that someone would say, you should be this, or you should be this, or you should be this, whenever the biomechanics and EMG activities would indicate all of those muscles are recruited just at different points to different degrees. If you're going to try to be hip dominant, does that imply that you just don't do anything for your knees? (laughs) Like why not just be hip and knee dominant and calf dominant and back dominant and abdominant, just get everything as strong as you possibly can. Why would you try to have any weakness or why would you try to create a compensation or something where 
one muscle is stronger than the other and you're forming maybe potentially forming problems as a result just get all of the rfd up and all of the muscles and try to get them all to be better so that you're able to jump higher run faster and all that stuff so it's just a weird concept for me i think too another miss big another big misconception is that you should the nature of your genetics how you move all those things will make you wholly one or the other that you're either all this or either all this and that you can train to be that way and you should maximize your potential in one or one's better than the other and that's just not true the reality is the movement strategy you pick is going to determine what muscles are recruited you can be quote unquote hip dominant or have stronger hips and do a movement that recruits more of the knees like a like a leg extension machine you do a leg extension machine you you can't recruit the hips in a leg extension machine you're not going to do it you're going to recruit the hip flexors because the rec fem crosses at the front of the joint but it, it, you can't make that hip dominant <laughs> like it's not you're not going to recruit you're going to have higher emg activity in the quad or in the hip when you're doing a leg extension it's just not going to happen i think this falls into what it is I first probably heard about it from Joel, I believe, when he talked about speed and power jumpers and talked about how some athletes are more squatty in their two foot jumps and other athletes are more like Jordan Kilgannon and you see them leaning forward a little bit more and you see the block foot out in front. And basically, I think his book says that essentially, in my opinion, if you have good technique, you're hip dominant. If you have bad technique, you're knee dominant. And I don't think that's accurate. I think that if you jump, if you do what I would call a long, short penultimate step, like Nico or who else would do it? Isaiah, who's another long short guy. Dan does it a little bit. Travis, Travis Reynolds. That you should Scotty, you should strive to I was actually I was looking at T flying high yesterday and he's actually Is he a tweener? He doesn't extend. He's yeah, he's like in between. Yeah. He doesn't fully extend that penultimate and he as a result he's more knee knee dominant. Yeah. I think that I don't think it's an accurate <clears throat> description or depiction of what actually happens. I think both of them recruit whether you have Jordan Kilgannon technique and Isaiah Rivera technique, or you have Nico technique and Scotty Weaver's technique, either way, you're going to be recruiting the quads a ton, no matter what. Would you say, because if you're more of a long, short guy, you're going to be using more, you're going to be like a little bit more upright, more bent, at, mostly bent at the knee. That movement pattern um, would definitely load the knees a little bit more probably, but the nature of breaking in a jump even if you're a quote unquote hip dominant athlete, you're still really vertical. Your feet are still really far out in front of you. And the, and the muscles that are being recruited when you touch down your plant foot and your block foot are the quads, predominantly the yeah. quads. When you go into that shift of your hips moving over the knees at the, at amortization, it's still super quad loaded. There's still a ton of loading in the quad. When you, I will say when you kick out, Probably where the hip is most recruited is when you kick out the plant foot. Right as you kick out that plant foot and your foot starts to move downwards towards the ground and you touch down with the heel. That's probably where you see the most amount of hip, actually hip and quad recruitment, I would argue, because you're co-contracting. You're going to recruit muscles on both sides of the joint because the hip is a hip, ex or the hamstring and the hip is going to function to extend the hip, which is going to help you jump higher. And they're functioning eccentrically, catching you as you push your momentum into that, as you land and your momentum is pushing you into the plant foot. 
And as you're bending the knees and things like that, it's just an eccentric contraction that you're seeing. But I would argue that it shifts from the hip quickly to the knee. So if you jump into it and you stay really vertical and do a, not a drop step, but a jump step, I guess it would be. Does that make sense, Isaiah? Uh, are you talking? Like if you jumped into your penultimate step, yeah. that would be super quad dominant. If you don't kick out some, one volleyball player explained it to me this way. He was like, yeah, how I get my stride longer for my penultimate step and how I increase that stride length as I move into my plant foot is I do a B skip. I B skip out the front leg. And that is what it feels that loads when you kick out and unfold the leg that loads your hip and hamstring a lot, a lot, and you preactivate a lot. And that's going to allow your foot to actually strike the ground, whether or not you could argue it's passive or it's active, or you should try to do that. I don't really necessarily agree with, I think it happens in as a function of the motor sequence, I wouldn't recommend someone to kick out and then strike down like a bound or something like that. I would kick out and then let my momentum push me into that straight leg, that straight plant foot. And you've probably experienced that too. That's how you get that skip off the ground, like skipping a rock off a ground and jumping high. So there's probably high recruitment as you kick out because it's motor patterning. You're going to start anticipating your plant foot recruiting those muscles before it ever touches the ground. And you're going to want to generate tension in that muscle before your foot touches the ground. So that when it does touch the ground, you've already generated a bunch of tension and you're ready to load the tendons there. You're ready to optimize the muscular tendinous unit to produce force, but that muscle might quickly shift or the predominance of the recruitment might quickly shift towards the quad. It might shift towards the rec fem or the media medialis, lateralis, or intermedius muscles. So you're using all of them. It's just at different time points. And the only way you could see this is if you did 3D motion analysis paired with and synchronized with EMG units. So you put little sensors all over the muscles and they measure the activity of each muscle group. You put them on the center of the muscle belly and it tells you at what level or amplitude are you getting electrical signals to those muscles. So it's the symphony I always talk about or the harmonic nature of muscles turning on and off at the right time and sequencing correctly. That's what the EMG would tell you. And if you paired that with 3d motion analysis, you could see at what time point and what position were they in when those muscles were recruited and to what degree I'm going based off what I have felt in my own jumping. And Isaiah, you could probably also come to the same conclusion. I would assume based on your jumping and what you, what muscles you feel turn on when you kick out that plant foot, do you tend to feel some heavy recruitment? in the hip and in the hamstring as you're coming into your jump. Uh, are you talking about when Foot. my leg is hitting the ground like as you're unfolding the leg ground? and then right as your heel touches the ground <clears throat> for your plant foot. So the, if you're left, right, your left leg coming down. So when I'm kicking the leg, it feels like it's a lot in my rec fam hip flexor. Cause I'm like, my legs coming up pretty high. Mm -hmm. I'm kicking hard. It's almost like you're kicking a soccer ball is a good way to put it like with my left leg. So I'm going like kicking a soccer ball while leaning forward. And then do so you don't feel a stretch in your sure. hip and hamstring at all during that? Because most people would feel a stretch in their hamstring and hip if they were kicking a soccer ball and leaning forward. Yeah, I think I do feel a stretch in my hamstring. I'd have to do the motion because I don't, that's not a sensation that I like. That sticks also out remember the hamstring the crosses the hip so that's why i'm asking him if he feels in his hip because your hip yeah. your hamstring crosses the hip joint which helps you with hip extension so if you feel it in your hamstring you're I'm, loading the hip 
Yeah, because when I'm at that point in my jump, I'm more so thinking about my back leg and pushing hard with that leg. I'm not super conscious of what my front yeah, leg is. Yeah, it happens inherently probably. Yeah, and then when I plant, that's like both. It's like very hip and knee. Like, so when your plant foot comes down or your block foot comes down or as your plant foot mm -hmm. touches down? As my plant foot touches. That's what I was saying. Right. You probably feel it when you kick out some because you're going to get some pre-anticipation. But then as you strike the ground, you see a massive spike in force and thus the breaking forces that you're seeing yeah. at the hip I think and I hamstring. Don't, it's co-contraction. I think too. I don't feel the stretch like crazy also. because You're so flexible. <laughs> but like my first jumps, so my warm-up jumps, I'm pretty cold. And those, and when it's slower effort, I'm not kicking out as much. Like I'm landing with my front leg pretty straight to the ground. I'm not kicking out a lot. And as I warm up more and more, that's when like my penultimate st step starts getting bigger. But at that point, I'm, I'm very warm and I don't feel as much of a... Like a super big stretch, I don't Do think. Do you feel it in your quad when you plant the plant foot? Yeah. Like right away yeah. when it touches the ground? I would say it goes hip. Then shifts then to the, quad. that's how mine is. It's that's like, what I was saying earlier. I feel it right away in my hamstring and hip, and then it shifts quickly to my quad. And then right as I go to push off, it's everything. As I go through from amortization yeah. to push off, it's everything is being firing. That all said. Yeah. It feels very similar to... Like the touchdown is like how a one foot jump would feel like when you plant. Yeah. And it, and like your hip like shifts. Like I would say when I jump off like one really early, I feel when I jump really high off one, I get a lot of rec fem, a lot of rec fem recruitment. I've actually pulled my rec fem jumping off one more than I've never hurt my medi medialis or lateralis. For those of you that don't know, these are quad muscles. Their quad is four muscles. So it's your rectus femoris. Your medialis, your lateralis, and your intermedius. Those four muscles make up your quad. Quad is four. That makes sense. Four muscles that cross the knee joint that help you do knee extension. One of those muscles, the rec fem, crosses the hip and the knee. So when you kick out like that on a one-foot jump or a two-foot jump, you are using the rec fem, along with your psoas and other hip flexor muscles, to move that foot in front of your body. And when you plant, there is a lot of breaking forces that happen. And on one-foot jumping, I will feel that at the knee and the hip Again, specifically with my rec fem. Isaiah's in the background doing two-foot approach jumps to feel out what he, <laughs> what he feels. I do feel it in my hamstring. Yeah, you feel it. Yeah. So I, I think when I kick. Yeah, I think that what can I say, man? I know you better than you know yourself, Isaiah. <laughs> yeah. So you cheeky. You cheeky. Don't say it. Anyways. <laughs> those are our experiences and some general info about it. But we had other topics that we wanted to cover. One of them being, we should talk about the low bar, low bar versus high bar, low bar versus high bar squatting, and that kind of goes into the movement strategy that you pick. Which we didn't even really cover the anatomy, but <clears throat> essentially, I just covered the quad. At the hip, you have your hamstring that crosses the hip joint on the backside. So your muscle is like, or your joint is sandwiched. It's a ball and socket joint. So the ball sits in the socket. Imagine a golf ball on a tee. The hip joint is more secure than that, but that'll give you a good analogy. And then essentially along that golf ball, you have different points where the tendon inserts on that golf ball and then crosses the, the union between the bottom of the golf ball and the top of the tee. And as you cross that junction, you are able to create a lever system where if you pull on one side, you could get the bottom of the tee to move up around the golf ball. And that's essentially how you're, it's an easy way for you to understand how the hip joint functions. I'm sure there's better analogies out there, but that's the quickest one I could think of off the top of my head. And the direction that the muscle was moved, the direction that the joint is moving is a function of where 
the tendon and muscle is crossing the joint. So if your tendon and muscle crosses the front of the joint, that's going to function to lift your leg forward. If it crosses the back of the joint, that's going to function to lift the, or move the leg backwards. If you're running or sprinting, you're doing all of those things cyclically. They're happening at whatever point in the stride, you might be moving your leg forward at whatever point you might be moving it backwards. Sometimes it's eccentric, sometimes it's concentric. It can make it very complex. That all said, the hip muscles that cross the back of the joint that would involve hip extension and are functioning eccentrically when you touch down and then concentrically when you push up or isometrically during amortization and then concentrically when you push up are going to be the glutes, it's glute med, the glute, gluteus maximus, which is just your ass cheeks. <laughs> and it's going to be the hamstring muscles. So it's going to be your biceps femoris, semi-tendinosis and semi-membranosis are going to be the muscles that cross the hip joint and are going to function to extend the hip. Those are the big ones, probably the most important ones I can think of. There's also like the deep six hip rotator muscles, which is obturators, in, internal and external gemellus. There's some others in there. Piriformis. Those muscles probably also function to extend the hip, but the big ones, like I said, are going to be your gluteus maximus and the hamstrings. And then on the front side of the muscle, you're going to have your rectus femoris. You're going to have the four that crosses the hip. That's really the biggest muscle that crosses the hip on the front side. You're also going to have sartorius, which kind of runs from the outside to the medial side of the knee. And you're going to have the, I got to think there's, this is off the top of my head. I wish I wrote these down. Gracilis crosses the hip joint on the inside. The adductor also might function to do some hip extension as well because it crosses the hip joint and then goes down to the inside of the knee. But the lines of pull and the directions that these muscles run allow them to do whatever joint action at the knee joint that would help you in jumping. You have your vastus medialis, vastus lateralis, and vastus intermedius. Everyone talks about the medialis. It's very difficult to target any one muscle group. If you put EMG activity, if you put EMG sensors, you could not see a drastic difference in the medialis versus lateralis versus intermedius in any activity you did. You would not see one predominantly recruited over the other. You can't predominantly recruit one over the other. And that is a big misconception. There might be one study that says that deep squats do recruit the VMO slightly more, but I've only seen that one study that would indicate that no matter how you turn your leg, no matter how you twist your foot, no matter how you lift, it's very difficult to recruit one over the other. So when people talk about chondromalacia, they talk about the rubbing of the underside of the patella with the bottom of the knee. It's then they're like, Oh, we've got to recenter your patella or whatever. Doesn't really even, you can't really strengthen the lateralis to be able to do that anyways. Maybe you could use, stim units, but this is interrelated to all of this being hip dominant versus knee dominant. That all said, all those muscles matter. Every single one of those muscles matter and all of them are going to help you jump higher. So that is the basic anatomy. That is what it means to be hip dominant or knee dominant, or in that if you're stronger in those quad extensors or your knee extensors or in those quad muscles, you're going to be knee dominant. And if you're stronger in the hip muscles, you're going to be hip dominant. But again, the reality is like Isaiah said, and like I said, you're recruiting all of those muscles at different times. If you, whatever movement strategy you pick is going to determine whether you recruit or how you recruit those muscles. That's because human movement is dictated by the muscles. <laughs> yeah. If you don't kick your leg out really far, that means you're not using the hamstring. You're not using your hip. You can fix that. You just have to learn how to do it. If you swing a baseball bat, like a freaking idiot, it's because you're recruiting the wrong muscles at the wrong times. You need to learn to recruit them at the right time. And you want to recruit the hip. If you're not kicking out, you want to recruit the hamstring. If you're not kicking out, 
if you're not kicking out, or if you're not kicking out, that means that you're not recruiting the knee and the hip earlier, but you're not getting the benefit of the co-contraction from the hamstring and hip when you touch down, which means you're not going to get the benefit of pre-anticipation and you're probably not going to deflect off the ground and you're probably not going to jump very high. So all of those muscles matter. It's just a matter of when they're being recruited. A good example of this that Isaiah mentioned previously is low bar versus high bar squatting. And I guess, Isaiah, you can discuss that a little bit, but what is it? What is high bar squatting? What's low bar squatting? And why is one more hip dominant versus knee dominant dictated by the movement strategy and not what the athlete is? Yeah. So high bar versus low bar, those are the two like most popular ways of squatting. Uh, low bar is more common in powerlifting. <clears throat> and low bar, as the name implies, the bar is lower on your back. So on a regular high bar squat, the, the bar is sitting right on top of your on your traps. And then on a low bar squat, it's sitting under your traps and almost like where your like shoulder blades are and on top of like your shoulder girdle. So having the bar that in that low of a position forces you to be a little bit more bent over. And if you were to look at a bar on this, like from a side view, it's always in the like over your center of mass, right? So if you have a certain amount of your body in front of the bar, it's there has to be an equal amount of mass behind the bar so that you don't tip over to the front or the back on a low bar because the bar is lower it forces the there to be more of your body mass in front of the bar so you're going to be a little more leaned over and you naturally that's going to have your knees shift a little bit behind your toes and it's going to engage your posterior chain a little bit more and your quads less high bar it forces you to be more upright so your knees come forward so it forces you to use your quads more. Mm -hmm. And, oh yeah, Hunter. I was just going to say, isn't it also that high bar will require a little more upper back strength to complete the exercise? Because I know in the powerlifting community, it's ex or it's accepted that the that your back will give when you're squatting before your legs do. Why a, a deadlift will typically be higher than a squat. So in so low they bar, they try to yes. move that bar as low as possible. No, so... so that I would disagree with that a lot. I think that's not true whatsoever. Your upper back would not be the driver of why you would or wouldn't get a lift. It would be holistically, systemically, you can't lift the bar up in a high bar squat. If you're a power lifter that is putting the bar higher on the back, as you lean forward, that bar has more torque on the joint axis, meaning the bar is moving farther away from the joint axis. You're holding a book bag farther away from the shoulder joint. That means it's gonna feel heavier, even if it's the same amount of weight, it's going to feel heavier at the hip and the low back and every vertebrae all the way up at every joint axis. You have to look at the distance from that joint axis to the weight that you're moving. So, but like moving the bar down, aren't you essentially just removing as much of the back as possible from the actual movement? You are. Yes. As you move the bar close. No, if you're just standing upright, totally upright and you move the bar up or down your back, if the bar is directly over the joint, over the center of the joint, you would not see any muscle recruited. You would see the bones supporting it because our body is not a vertical steel bar though. And balancing a weight at the top of it, because we have curvature in our spine, because our shoulder girdle is slightly off center. When you move the bar on your upper back, you have to flare the elbows back and lean forward slightly to balance just ever so slightly, or because you're wider and you're putting that barbell down, it's not, the barbell is not falling directly over top of your hip joint directly over top of the knee joint, directly over top of the ankle joint. As you move that barbell down, you are required to lean forward to balance it on your back. If you stood up totally vertically or leaned back, 
and put the barbell in a low bar squat, it would roll down your, it would roll down your body, right? It would fall off your back. You couldn't hold it up. There's no way, especially not with a lot of weight. You have to lean forward because you're trying to shift the center of mass of the system over the base of support, which is your feet. So what Isaiah was saying is, or to address your point about, does it recruit your upper back or lower back? If you're leaning forward more and your the bar's lower on your back, the bar is shifting closer to the hip axis, which means it, the hip axis doesn't, the muscles at the hip don't have to recruit as much force and the knees do. So wow. However, when you start to lean forward, the barbell then moves forward really far. As you do the low bar squat, you typically lean forward a lot and you hinge at the hip. So the bar is moving really far away from the hip axis and your low back and your upper back has to be super, super strong. Whereas in a front squat or a good high bar Olympic style squat, you're very vertical. So if you're very vertical, as you squat down, odds are your hip joint and your knee joint, unless you're really short are moving in equidistance from each other, meaning that you're able to load the hip and the knee pretty equivocally where the low bar squat, the barbell might be completely over top of your knees. If you're super hip dominant, meaning in the movement, not as an athlete, and you're pushing your hips super far back by moving. It's That's like an I RDL, do. right? An RDL. That's me. You don't use your quads really much at all. That's me. That's what I did. Yes. For all my squats. Yeah. So if you do that, you're just, you're not going to recruit that you will, as you bend the knee, you will, but it's going to be such that you're not going to, you will recruit them, but it's not going to be nearly as much as it would be in a front squat or a back squat. You would see that on EMG activation. If you're getting to those, oh, max, if you're getting to feel those it. max effort lifts, you probably are going to no matter what, but the sequencing well, of it might be different. I don't know. I'd have to see it under EMG. So for me, like the max I ever got up to was a 500 pound squat and that was very low bar. And when you, when I would rack it, when I racked it, the one time I did it, your lower back and hamstrings feel fried. Yeah. That makes sense. Whereas on the THP squats where I've really focused on elevating my heel staying and vertical, trying to keep keeping it the knees forward. high bar. Yeah. It just, it destroys your quads yeah. after your set. You're like, Oh yeah, that's quads. So you want to do both. Ideally you want both. You want to, have hip and knee recruitment. However, if the high bar squatting inherently high bar Olympic style squatting is inherently recruiting a lot of the quadricep, it's just the nature of it. Anytime you're doing a deep squat like that, the nature of the movement is that the knee joints moving very far away from the axis of rotation of the knee and your knees are moving farther away from the line of action. And it's going to recruit the quadricep muscles a lot. If you're doing low bar, the reverse is true. <laughs> Moving the hip axis. Yeah, I mean, away. I just say I'm still building up the and the the quad strength to match what my posterior chain has typically taken over in previous lifting cycles. Well, I, so I just yeah. say my quads aren't matched strength wise. I, I think too that the hip a low bar squat is a stronger movement. Than a high bar squat. Oh, def oh definitely. This is so, every power lifter does yeah, low bar. Exactly. It's a stronger movement because you're not seeing the same external torques that you will in a high bar squat. A high bar squat, you're seeing more angulation at the knee and you're seeing more angulation at the hip. You're moving through a greater range of motion. Maybe not at the hip. I don't know. I'd have to see for sure. But you're seeing a lot of angulation at both of those joints and you're seeing the joint axis move really far away from the line of action. Meaning the high bar squat, deep high bar squat, you are at a mechanical, more of a mechanical disadvantage than you are in a low bar squat. And it's frustrating for me when we look at low bar because you're only looking at the knee joint. You're just getting to 90 degrees of the knee joint. You're not considering how much hip flexion you moved into. Some guys can basically bend over like, and have their backs parallel to the floor and do a low bar squat. Norton. 
if you want to see a Lane Norton, like if you want to see what John just described, go Google Lane Norton, like powerlifting competition squat, and his back almost goes horizontal. Parallel with the ground. If yeah. you do that, you have way more hip angulation, way more hip angulation, and that's going to put you at a massive mechanical disadvantage at the hip. It's not even beneficial to do. There's probably the best way is probably to find a balance and to consider the individual athletes strengths or weaknesses as far as panation angle or whatever else. Maybe at this point you could say it's hip or quad dominant, but that's probably because of them repeating that patterning over and over again. And I don't think one's better than the other. It's just, if you want to get better at low bar, you're going to need to get your hips strong. <laughs> you need to get your hamstrings. Yeah. Just to bring it back to the podcast topic. It's my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm the stupid one here. You're not stupid. Um, on that it probably makes sense to try to find the most balanced squat form you can develop safely and strongly. 100%. The one that your hips allow you to move at comfortably that load both the hip and the knee, or if maybe you do have a disposition to load the quad a little bit more highly than the hip, you could just add in some RDLs, add in some just, hip thrusts, add also, in something. Just to a heads it. up, you got to do Olympic lifting. And if you're going to do Olympic lifting and you do a power clean or anything like that, you're going to have to develop some sort of ability to do a high bar balance squat. Because if all you do is low bar, and then you get into some front squat position well, full that you've clean. never gotten into where the weight is higher. I see what you're saying. You're saying so if you're apologize. ever trying to do a full clean, a high bar squat is going to be more specific than a low bar squat. That's true. That's why it's an Olymp That's why low high bar squatting is more. That's why Olympic lifters do high bar squatting because it's more specific for their sport. So they're going to get better yeah. at clean and jerk via back squatting. They're going to get better with their first pull and second pull in the clean and the jerk by getting their back squat up. Just increase the strength of all those muscles. I have a question. I guess sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So when you're squatting, sorry guys who are listening on Apple Podcast, but your lower back, when you go to start your movement, do you want it to be anteriorly rotated at all or do you want it to be as neutral as possible? So when someone goes to unrack the weight and they get ready to do the squat, what is the first movement that you tell your athletes to think about? So I think it's based on the individual athlete's comfort if you force someone into a movement that they're not comfortable with, they're going to get hurt. And while we ideally want to see a neutral spine and we want to see angulation at the hip and the knee happening at the same time in unison, and we want to see the barbell shift between the hip and the knee axis, not everyone has that perfect anatomy. They don't. But also just a heads up guys listening, don't feel bad at the gym. If you got to film yourself because this becomes really important to understand what you need to improve upon. This is like any other skill that you're developing. It helps to actually be able to see yourself do it. So you can see, all right, what did I screw up? And sometimes you gotta go slow-mo because you won't really be able to see what joint breaks first in a squat unless you're filming yourself. You're so don't feel bad. I do this every time and I get teased and made fun of, but <laughs> Zooming it's important. In. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I think that the first thing that you should do again is find out what the athlete's comfortable with, find out how they squat without load, and then try to optimize it. Try to get them closer to maybe what you would want to see for, for me, if I'm looking at a squat and I, it's one of my athletes, I want them to squat like an Olympic weightlifter. How is that? I want the feet to be roughly shoulder width apart. I want a very slight toe out position, meaning that they rotate their feet outwards, maybe between zero and 20 degrees or something like that. It just depends on their hip anatomy. And I want them to have sequencing such that the hip and the knee joint angulate at the same exact time. I want them to not curve or lose posture at any point throughout that lift. I want them to maintain correct posture as if they were walking around like a butler or anything else and the angulation happening at the hip and the knee joint and the ankle joint. 
I want their spine to move around those joint axes. What you tend to see is that the axes of the spine start to flex in the lumbar spine. Your spine Isaiah has does, a natural curvature. That is Isaiah does a really good. So Isaiah just posted three fifteen on front squat. I would recommend looking at that. Very good. Because I think Isaiah does a very good job of keeping everything. Like he has good lat flexibility that allows him to keep his elbows up. He has really strong back, very strong core, and is able to stay in a relatively same position throughout the entirety of the front squat movement. Whereas most people, they have tight lats or not a very strong they know, fold torso with the loaded term that is, you'll see that they start to round over towards the bottom of the lift. Mm -hmm. yeah. The best way to get better at that, in my opinion, is doing it over and over again and forcing positions. Just obviously rolling out. Actually rolling out and stretch help a lot, but yeah. My front squat used to be really weak and bad. I was looking at my like old ones from two years ago. When I first started working with John, I was having trouble with just 225. And if it would get heavy, I like Pussy. I couldn't keep my elbows up. But literally the way I got better was like forcing myself to keep my elbows up at the bottom. And eventually that, that position just got stronger. Because you're not gonna get yeah. stronger if you just keep breaking your technique when it yeah, You gotta like really focus on it. Like when I joined and started training under John, my high bar squat was horrendous like maybe 315 for a few reps and i just did four or five for three and probably had at least one or two more in the tank this past weekend or friday or something but anyway just like repetition but with intent mm -hmm. yeah the other thing that as an athlete you should probably realize or as a coach if you're listening to this how you do the movement matters a lot it matters maybe more than the actual movement prescribed if you're doing a low bar, if, if I put squat in the program and it says low bar and the other one says high bar and one says pause and one says slow, those are massively different movements. If you move it slow versus fast, massively different. The benefit of those exercises, completely different. The amount of fatigue that they induce, completely different. The response- and where they induce fatigue, very different. Very different. If you're putting in a calf raise and it just says calf raise, is double leg calf raise, is a single leg calf raise, is it fast, is it slow? The recruitment of the muscles is completely different. The tendon interaction is completely different. The load that you use on yeah, the bar and the changes that you see are completely different. Generally speaking, you want your movement pattern in our training for a squat to be a high bar Olympic style squat. If you're in our training, that's how you should be squatting. If you're doing a clean in our training, I want it to look like an Olympic weightlifters clean. <laughs> Ideally, you can pick a Russian weightlifter Actually, the American weightlifters are the ones I would probably go with in the early 2000s. I would look maybe at some of those guys. They tend to bow their We're legs We're working on making videos for our members, guys. It's coming. Yeah. We are working on that currently. If you're doing... COVID situation is traveling kind of tough. If you're doing any lift that is a power clean or Olympic lift, which is a snatch, power snatch, any derivative of that, or a clean or a power clean or any derivative of that, I want max intent and I want you jumping when the bar is anywhere between the middle of your quad to your hip joint. That's should be every single Olympic lift. If you're doing a squat, I want max intent in that Olympic style squat to get the most benefit out of it. I am programming your training with the assumption that you are doing those things correctly every single time. If you're not seeing as much carryover from the lifts, it's because you're not making them the same. You're not making it specific like it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be specific. It's supposed to be super high neural drive, super high intent, super high force and maximal, just like jumping is. So if you're not doing that, then it's no longer specific and you're not going to get better yeah. from it. <laughs> you can still get better. And That's so, not true. But so. ideally, especially if you're not trained well and you can handle doing that, you should be doing that.
So just to bring this back, Isaiah and John, hip first, <laughs> the knee dominant jumpers. The, the training differences, it doesn't sound like it's going to be drastically different. It's not a thing. Maybe the f- you shouldn't train such that it exists. You should train according to the task you're trying to achieve. If you are doing a, if your goal is to be an Olympic weightlifter, you need strong hips and quads. If your goal is to be a power lifter, you need, and you want to low bar, you probably low bar squat, which means you got to work on your hamstrings and hips. You also got to work, you got to get everything as strong as possible. There's no point in making one stronger than the other. Just get them all as strong as possible. They're all going to help you. If you're a baseball player, it doesn't matter if you're hip or knee dominant. You got to work on the rotational elements and you got to work on wait, wait, wait. your shoulder. That. Okay. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> so I was just thinking about any baseball activity that I've done where that might matter. Yeah, that's pretty important. It's just task dependent is what I would say. Whatever you want to do, you need to figure out what muscles are being recruited and what sequence and you need to max them out. You need to get them as strong as you possibly can. I always make the argument too. Don't leave any stones unturned. Why would you risk not getting something better if you have the luxury to do it and it's not going to hurt you? If it's going to hurt you, maybe that's different, right? And I'm not having Isaiah kill plyos right now because he can't handle it. It just depends on what Shots your task fired. is. Are we ready for closing thoughts? Closing You're remarks? Ready? All right. Are you going to do it? You know, I hope everyone enjoyed this week's podcast. There was probably some things that you might want to see on the video, but if you're living that, listening to Apple Podcast, go ahead and rate rate and review. It really helps. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe. Let us know what we can do better, what you want to see in future topics, and we obviously take those into account. John will be monitoring the comments for the next 24 hours, so go ahead and drop those comments. And until next time, peace. Peace out. Bye.